0: a mental hygiene practice, right? Because we have like dental hygiene that we practice every day. It's a little bit weird that we have dental hygiene that we practice every day. But, you know, most people probably couldn't name one mental hygiene practice every day. And I'm just going to throw out the suggestion that maybe your brain is more important than your teeth. The the dentist can come fight me on that one. But but I think one practice that's just it's healthy for all humans in general is to just keep some kind of a, a like a journal or a gratitude log or something uh, and so, one of the habits for me that's been uh, the the biggest benefit to me this year has been that just I have a journal, and every single morning, uh, three things that I'm grateful for. They can be personal, they can be professional.
1: Welcome to Helium Podcast. I'm Christine Ogilvie Hendren here with Matt Hotze. On today's episode, we chat with author Matthew Kent. He's heavily focused on productivity and on personal finance. He's written a book actually called Personal Finance That Works For You. He publishes regularly in blog form at thematthewkent.com, and he often publishes on medium.com as well. I know our conversation left me with lots of food for thought on my own habits and how I treat my own brain space.
2: Yeah, for me, technology is both a hero and a villain. And between emails, social media, and all other forms of communication. It's a constant stream that leaves me feeling overwhelmed and without a day-to-day strategy for how to combat technology in my life. So I was really happy to have Matthew on the show so we could walk through some of these strategies with him.
1: I was glad we got to talk to Matthew and walk through one article of his in particular about specific strategies for mental hygiene around technology. To your point, Matt. He's a very focused person who is fascinated by applied intentionality and he's distilled some very solid advice on how people can adapt and manage their relationship to all the noise that we are inundated with in our lives, plenty of it in academia, but really any life that is hectic and relies on using your brain. And also just how we can not add to this noise with technology and obsessive behavior around it um i was particularly interested in the parts of it where we think we're solving a problem and maybe adding to it
2: and and one thing we didn't talk about before recording this intro christine but i just thought about is that was super relevant for our audience was the idea of the time that you need to have your brain sort of not be doing anything versus the time that it's super engaged and what happens with technology is that we we remain engaged constantly, no matter what we're doing. And really some of the great minds throughout history have learned that the most important thing is to actually disengage your mind intentionally over time. So he talks a little bit about some of the strategies around that, which were really cool and I think very relevant for people that are trying to engage their minds purposefully in the practice of science and engineering. And the the other thing that I wanted to mention is that if you listen to the end of the episode, uh, or you jump over to the show notes right now, he's actually very kindly curated a list of his most helium-relevant pieces uh, from his medium.com publishing for our audience. So if you check it out on the show notes page, he's actually put all of the pieces that he thinks are most relevant to our folks in one place, which was very kind of him. So without further delay, let's get into our conversation with Matthew Kent we're welcoming to the show today, Matthew Kent, who is an author and entrepreneur. Welcome, Matthew. Hey, thanks guys for having me. I'm grateful to have this conversation with you today.
1: Yes, we are too. Speaking of grateful, we really have welcomed you here for selfish reasons because we need <laughs> your therapy and coaching. <laughs> um, we really want to get better at navigating this world that we are in with all of these different things you know, fragmented parts of it and competing things for the tracks of our mind Um and out of our own way. And you have some very practical and extremely salient advice that we can't wait to pick your brain about. And then, you know, we'll record it for our listeners too.
2: That sounds good to me. Totally selfish. This is like the most selfish podcast we've done so far episode wise. I think Christine... <laughs> Because <laughs> I feel like this is a chronic problem for me. And so basically, uh, you wrote an article on Medium, which I I've did. found to be so uh, practical, uh, which was, I think the title of the article is something like, Technology is Destroying You, the Five Ways that Technology is Destroying You. Yep. It was uh, the
0: Five Ways Technology is Destroying You and What to Do About It.
2: Yeah. That, that, yeah, that's the key part, right? Is the 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 approach to actually doing something about it. So, right. I think I think you went through uh, several key points. I think it was five of them uh, in terms of the problems that technology creates for them, for for us, for everybody. And so, I, I was thinking we can just kind of walk through some of those problems and and just have a discussion about it.
0: Yeah. And, you know, I think the one disclaimer I'd put at the front is, you know, listen, I, when it comes to technology, it's not a, you know, are you for it? Are you against it? I mean, it's here to stay. We're not putting the genie back in the bottle. And ultimately, I mean, technology has improved our lives in, in countless ways. And, you know, we wouldn't even be able to have and distribute this conversation without, you know, many of the, the technologies that are, uh, also have some of the the negative aspects that that I do want to uh, talk about, but it is because everything is a double edged sword, and you know there's always positives and negatives uh, that we should be at least a little bit concerned of uh, having all these tools at our disposal that that no one else has ever had in human history and you know how our brains work and how our brains are are interacting um, are being affected by you know what we see around us and you know just one of the things. Uh, that I was reading a book, uh, I believe it was called Reclaiming Conversation uh, by Sherry Turkle. And uh, one of the things it was mentioning is, uh, listen, it used to be the case that uh, people were able to sit with themselves, sit with their own thoughts, their own ideas, and turn inward into their imagination, you know, when, when encountering boredom. Well, now when we encounter boredom, I mean, what do we do? We we pull out a screen I mean, you can just watch it around, you know, the supermarket or wherever. If somebody's forced to stand in the line for more than four seconds, the screen's coming out. And so we're, we're able to be engaged wherever we are. And so we don't have to turn inward. And so there's uh, this sense in which, you know, th- th- there's that roadblock there, whereas before you were, you know, thinking about things loosely, making connections. Uh, and now you just have this never ending stream of stimuli to respond to uh, which is, you know, not something that anybody's ever, ever had to to deal with. And, you know, I think one of even the 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 problems that you have, you know, uh it's not just being able to focus. You know, one of the things that gets brought up all the time is, okay, well, what about your working memory and you know, what about your ability to 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 focus in on a deep, deep task? But even something uh like your own emotional well being. Uh, one of the things that some of the preliminary studies are noticing is that uh, children today are suffering with very high levels of anxiety. And I'm sure it's the adults too, Uh, just because, you know, you look on social media and you see things that are like, you know, uh, so-and-so is having a baby and somebody else got a promotion. And, you know, you're, you're looking at all your academic friends and you're like, oh, you know, they got this grant that I didn't get. And, you know, they got their paper finished and you know, here I am feeling like I can't hold everything all together. Um, and because social media is set up to, to show the highlights and only the highlights, you know, there's a few people, uh, sharing their struggles, but, but overall, it's like you're not seeing the people who didn't get the grant, right? You're, you're not seeing the people who are trying to have a baby and, and they're not successful. Uh, you're seeing all the highlights and then you're comparing that to your up and down life. And you're thinking, well, man, I I must be missing something here because, you know, everybody else has got everything together. And, uh, you know, here I am and I can just barely, you know, stay afloat.
1: Right. So it's not just the drinking from the fire hose problem of endless onslaught of stimulus. But it's um, I heard something this week that was, you know, sometimes the grass is greener on the other side because it's AstroTurf. It's 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 fake. Right. So, um, (laughs) yeah, it's I. I think those are all really good points and I, um, you know, what you said that resonates with me and I think with the people that are, uh, in our audience is that this is a job category that it could not be more important to protect the ability of your mind space to operate, to create, to make new connections, to invent things that haven't been in the world before. And so that's a, that's a existential threat to your productivity. If your mind is just being pillaged by, uh, by this misuse. Um, I don't know you, I don't know if, uh, I'm dating myself, but that's always fine with me that, uh, the early 80s, um, you, did you ever see that show, The Greatest American Hero? I did not. Okay. Well, it was excellent in my, uh, in my childhood mind. Um, but this guy stumbles upon this magic suit that's like a Superman suit and it lets him fly. Um, but he just finds it and, and is really bad at it. So he has a really hard time flying. And then he, the only way he can land is by crashing. So it's like he has this amazing new tool that can let him soar, you know, literally. Right. But then he doesn't know how to handle it. And I think this generation is just exactly dealing with that. We're the first ones to have technology at our fingertips. And just as you say, it's all excellent, but it it's not always working for us. Sometimes we, we haven't figured it out. We are crash landing a lot, you know. So I wonder if you could walk us through maybe your five key ways for people to kind of self-diagnose? What are the categories that I'm injuring myself with my, you know, insufficient knowledge of how to use these technologies?
0: Right. So, you know, I think one thing that I would look at is um, your ability to learn new things and and to be creative. So if you feel kind of like you're stuck, uh, like you're unoriginal, like you're not just kind of getting your mind around the things that you need to get your mind around, uh, that's a pretty good indication that you might be sort of chronically distracted. And, you know, a part of the reason for that is the the way that our minds work and the way that we learn things and the way that even creativity happens is there's this natural sort of give and take where we get into a very distraction-free, very focused mindset. And, um, and then we, we try to work through something, but then it's actually during the time when we, we, we rest and take a break from that where uh, the connections get made, those new neural pathways happen, and it's almost like the brain is is operating on on two different levels. Um, and so, you know, neuroscientists might talk about this as you know, focus mode versus diffuse mode. Um, the uh, psychologist Daniel Kahneman, the Nobel Prize winner, uh, in his book Thinking Fast and Slow, he called these System One and System Two. And we kind of we operate off of this, you know, back and forth between the two. It's almost like. Uh, you know, a game of ping pong, where as long as the ball is going back and forth, you know, that's, that's the state that we should be in. And what happens sometimes with our technology is that it provides distraction into our time of focus so that our brain isn't really able to go deep. And so, you know, whether that's notifications on your phone, uh, whether that's, you know, trying to multitask, so you're checking email while you're also supposed to be writing a paper, um, or whatever it is, you know, you're you're not focusing like you should be. Uh, but then you're also not resting like you should be either. Because then it comes time for your mind to unwind, to relax. And instead, you kind of have it in in reactive mode, where you have this, you know, maybe feed on your screen, and whether it's your email, or whether it's Twitter, or, or whatever it is, uh, you, your your mind's not free to wander, but your attention is captured and divided. And then that's extremely problematic, because you're supposed to have this back and forth between very focused, and then mind at ease. And you're not getting that in either space, you're getting, you know, distracted in one sense, and reactive uh, in the other space. And so what what we really need is, you know, to have that space where we are going to shut the door to the office, we are going to, you know, put the phone on silent, we are just going to look at what we're doing, and only what we're doing. And then we need to have that space where when we're alone, we're not immediately pulling out something to react to, but we're letting our mind wander and, you know, we're letting those connections just sort of happen organically and letting our mind do the work that it's capable of doing. I mean, our mind is, the human brain is the most sophisticated object in the universe. And I mean, it can do some incredible stuff if we just get out of the way and let it.
2: One of the things that I, I want to go back to what you mentioned is multitasking yeah. and thing that caught my eye in the article was talking about this idea that multitasking is addictive yes. and that you, and that there's this, there's this negative, I mean, the way that I envisioned it is, is a negative, uh, feedback loop right, of multitasking that people can find themselves into. And I thought that that was, I thought that was a fascinating, Idea that people would conv- continually convince themselves that this was the right way to go. Right. You know, I, I, so I think
0: the allure of multitasking is that it helps you feel busy. And so I think we all want to feel busy because feeling busy somehow we equate that with being productive. But just because your hands aren't idle doesn't mean, you know, that you're accomplishing something important. And so it's hard to lose that, that sense of like, okay, well, here's the, the output of my work right now, but here's what it could be. Our brains are very bad at imagining what, what is not there. Um, You know, here's what could be if I were to just, you know, do these things one after the other. And so in some cases, you know, we get caught up with, you know, we have like 30 different tabs open. And so we're trying to bounce back and forth between like answering our email and doing this other thing. And, you know, sometimes it's more subtle though. Sometimes it's just mixing two steps together that probably should be separated. And so a good example with this is if you're writing you know, you probably shouldn't be editing as you're writing. And I think most of us try to do that of like, oh, I got to go back and fix this. You should probably just be getting the next idea out because that's the way that your brain is operating right now. You can come back later and edit it. But what happens is if you stop yourself and you start to edit what you've written, your brain switches back and forth between a task that it was doing, which was coming up with the next idea, and then doing a new task, which is now fixing what was there before. And the problem with that is there's a cognitive load associated with, with switching. And so you're slowing yourself down without realizing that you're being slower, uh, but you're feeling really good because you're like, oh, wow, look at this. I'm not even going to have to go back and edit this. Like I'm saving so much time. And you're probably becoming less effective, less productive. But at the same time, like you mentioned, that negative feedback loop, You're you're feeling better about your own ability to manage your time and to get things done. And so it's this sort of like perverse incentive that's happening, um, where you're getting this dopamine hit, your brain's feeling really good, but at the same time, it's not being as effective as it should be.
1: That's amazingly, uh, resonant for me also. I'm, I'm going to try to cut myself down from saying that word a hundred times because (laughs) you're such a sensei for me right now, but, um, but, uh. I think in addition, sometimes people may not want the feeling of busyness. So you're describing me in every way, what, how my days happen often. Um, and I would say that for me, often the feedback loop is really people pleasing. It makes somebody else happy. If I answer their email right away, it makes somebody else get what they need to get done. And so for people that, you know, in their job want to keep up good relationships and, um, you know, serve other people well, it can be really easy to put what that other person would like ahead of what would be right for your focus. Right. So I think even if you're not getting the feedback loop of, Oh, I feel really busy. I, it, you can still get into it because you're meeting other people's goals. Right. And,
0: you know, I think with email, that's a, that's a really good point. Uh, and, you know, email is sort of like the original social media and it's probably the one that, uh, most relevant for, for an academic setting. But when you think about what your email really is, your email is a list of other people's agenda for your time, right? Which, which is fine. And like you mentioned, there, there might be good reason for other people to want to have claims on your time. And there might be, you know, incentive that you have to want to uh, then, you know, meet them and, and, and their demands, Uh, especially if it's like your boss, it's like, yeah, you better reply to that email. But at the same time, you know, there's this sense of, Uh, What technology does is it makes us reactive, and so you have all these forces that are working together to make us react to things, when really, I mean, what our brains should be doing and where we're the most useful and where we're going to have the most fulfilling and satisfying career is if we can figure out a way to, most of the time, have our brains be proactive and productive, uh, so we're not reacting to everything that the world is throwing to us and just responding But that we're contributing things to the conversation, uh, that we're pushing forward new insights, that we're doing real work that we can be proud of. And so, uh, yes, there's a sense in which, you know, there's always got to be this this digital communication. um, But at the same time, it's like we just need to be careful because we need to make sure we have enough boundaries set up that we know that we're, for the most part, making progress. uh, And then everybody else can kind of, that's a secondary thing.
2: And I, and I want to shift a little bit to toward approaches here, but sure. I, I don't want to miss. I don't want to miss, and we've touched on some of the approaches already, but I want to get into those because that's the most I think the most practical thing that people can take away from this. But I, I want to touch on another problem, which I think actually relates to academia: uh, the the problem of empathy going right. down, right? Because. You, you, everything is just a digital. I mean, even if it's a picture of a person, it's just a di- digital object in some ways. And that this idea that you're de- almost like dehumanizing people because you're just interacting right. with a screen. So I, I wonder if we could talk a little bit about that because I think it's, I think. Academics have to deal with this problem right. as well. You know, I, so empathy is a huge issue, and that's
0: another one where the, I, you know, the early studies have focused on children, but I'm I'm sure it's happening with adults as well. Of this this declining empathy as we go on, and when you think about communication, and and you know, the the digital technology has been great for communication because the speed of life has always been regulated by the speed of communication, and so email is faster than anything that's ever come before it, and it has the advantage of it doesn't have to be live. You can send the message and you know, they get it on their own time. Um, but sort of at, at each level that you add something more personal back in, uh, it becomes more possible to have real empathy. And I think the the real tipping point is the point at which you have eye contact. And, you know, I mean, obviously, you know, we we intuit people's emotions from looking at their eyes and, you know, their eyebrows can kind of tell you the, the expression. Um, and so, you know, little children do this uh, all the time you'll see them looking into your eye and you know even if you're a stranger that you'll you walk in and they'll kind of look at you and and size you up and even like look right into your eyes um, and actually so one of the things that psychologists have been studying for a long time uh and I don't I think it was actually a novelist who, who coined this term it's it's the meeting eyes of love and it's this idea that uh critical to a child's well-being especially an infant a baby uh would be the the eye contact that it it makes with its mother And so we've had this idea that we've known about for a while that like, hey, eye contact is pretty important. And so I think for all of us, you know, um, one of the books that I read, I think I've mentioned already, it was by the the uh, the MIT professor, Sherry Turkle, and it was called Reclaiming Conversation. And that was part of this idea is, listen, where so much of our communication now is digital, we need to make sure that sometimes we put the technology completely away and connect with people face to face, look them dead in the eye uh, and remember that they're a real human being. Uh, remember that, you know, the, the, there's these emotions that they have to everything that we say. And, uh, it, you know, that this aspect of communication, of of personal communication, uh, has always been part of what it means to be human. And so I think in terms of quality of life, you know, it, if all communication goes digital, everyone's quality of life is going to take a serious hit. And we all need to be thinking about like, man, how much eye contact have I had today? Uh, cause I think that's a, that if there was a way to track that metric, I would bet that would correlate pretty highly with people's overall happiness and satisfaction.
2: I actually have two follow-ups now cause you just said that tracking <laughs> metrics. So my science meter awesome. went off and so Christine does a, Christine does a lot of work working and I do a little bit of it working with, uh, t- on team science concepts. And we're always thinking about how do you track the effectiveness of how a team is right. working together? I bet if you could measure teams and compare the amount of eye contact that might be correlated between different teams that might be correlated with the effect effectiveness of the team.
1: I, I mean, totally want to do that. I've so far just been be measuring amazing. laughs like for me, how many laughs there are in a meeting is a metric, and I kind of keep a little yeah. nerd tally because um just but it's a different measure the eye contact is is an a wonderful I don't know rehumanizer, right that,
0: uh, right. Yeah. I like it. And so it's humor. And I wonder if those two things, eye contact and, and laughter are, are even correlated, you know, I mean, they don't necessarily need to be, you know, you can have a, a hysterical phone conversation with somebody, but I mean, it would be an interesting thing, you know, because it is easier to know when somebody's telling a joke, if you're looking at them directly in the eye, um, or at least, you know, studying somewhat their, their, their facial features. So you can kind of see the little bit of tongue in cheek, uh, you know, figuratively, but, but maybe also sometimes literally, uh, that they have going for them.
1: Well, I mean, you've, you've run through really smoothly kind of the, you know, the hit that our creativity and our focus takes and, um, the way that our anxiety goes up and our empathy goes down. Um, one other thing from your article that I would love to, uh, get your guidance on for our listeners, of course, um, is contentment. Um, just the idea that contentment goes down and, um, just maybe you can speak to that a little bit.
0: You know, I think there's really two primary ways and there might be more wh- why this is happening. Uh, and I think one of them is just the comparison thing. And I think I hit on that a little bit earlier where, you know, you can look and see somebody else's highlights. Um, but at the same time, you're stuck with your own up and down reality. And the other thing is advertising. Now, advertising is nothing new. it's It's been around forever. And, you know, the advertisers have wanted to get in front of your eyeballs and deliver you a message that that, Causes an emotional change within you that's, you know, going to drive a a purchasing decision because ultimately all purchasing decisions are emotional. That's, that's how we make those decisions. And then we rationalize them with, oh, this is, you know, these are the reasons why these are the features of this car, why I bought it. But really, it's just because, you know, the commercial made it look cool. And, um, like all of us, when we buy an iPhone, let's face it, you're like, oh, iPhone is better than Android because X. And really what you're saying is, ooh, shiny. And then you, you know, you (laughs) came back and you, You came back and you justified it to yourself. But, uh, one of the things that's, that's happening then is the advertisers know that if they can make us desire something that like we feel our life is, is, you know, not complete without it, um, then they can drive us to action. And one of the things with, uh, the technology and the rise of particularly like social media is that there are companies like Google and Facebook that basically own like all of our data. And so that happens when you sign up, you, you, you agree that like, yeah, you guys can use all this data and sell it to people and do whatever you want with it. And so that literally is Facebook's, you know, that's their business model is they say, Hey, we have a bunch of users and we have their data. So if you want to advertise to somebody, you know, not only can we say you're going to advertise to X many people, but we can say you're going to advertise to X many people who have this interest, who have visited this page, are this age this gender because we have all of their data and so if you ever had that experience where you went out and you thought about buying something and so you kind of had it open on your browser tab and then you went to facebook and they're advertising it to you it's because they know what you're doing (laughs) Mm -hmm. and so you 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 know you have this personalized advertisement where now they can make you discontent because they know what you want because they know who you are whereas before you know maybe you're like a 30 year old female baseball fan and you see a lot of commercials for Viagra, and you're like, "Well, I, you know, that's not really. I don't really care too much." Uh, you know, now they're, they're, there's not that problem that advertisers have anymore because, like, we're just not going to show it to that demographic. We're going to show it to the you know sixty year old men that we thought we were showing it to.
1: Right. Well, the the translation that comes to my mind from this in terms of uh, distraction you know, kind of taking your eyes off the prize of what your priorities are because what is the onslaught coming across you is, you know, your name gets out there because you do some reviews for journals and then you're getting tons of invitations to special issues and you're getting tons of, you know, invitation to certain conferences and you're seeing LinkedIn, how glossy somebody else's website are, you know, right. And there are a million different, at indications of everybody else's success because we we need to build that up. So feeling like you're always behind, I guess, is a is a big danger not only from the technology, but just the culture of academia. So just kind of putting the blinders on and being intentional seems like a good takeaway.
0: <laughs> yeah, putting the blinders on is definitely key. And you know, reminding yourself, because you know it's easy to do that. You look at some other professor's website and you're like, man, it's sleeker than mine. And okay, but how sleek your website is doesn't really determine how good the content is. And some people don't even notice that stuff. You know, you're noticing it because you're comparing, you know, somebody else who visits your website isn't comparing. They're just visiting your website. Um, and then, yeah, so there's that, that one, you know, aspect of perspective. And then there's also the aspect of like, listen, sometimes we just got to put this stuff away and say, uh, you know, I'm going to go and, you know, just be happy for what I have. Uh, I think that for academics and really for all people in general, uh, one practice that's just a healthy practice, uh, I'll call it a, a mental hygiene practice, right? Cause we have like dental hygiene that we practice every day. It's a little bit weird that we have dental hygiene that we practice every day, but you know, most people probably couldn't name one mental hygiene practice every day. And I'm just going to throw out the suggestion that maybe your brain is more important than your teeth. Um, but, I mean, you know, the, the dentist can come fight me on that one, but, but I think one practice that's just, it's healthy for all humans in general. It's to just keep some kind of a, 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 like a journal or a gratitude log or something. Uh, and so one of the habits for me that's been, uh, the, the biggest benefit to me this year has been that just I have a journal and every single morning, uh, three things that I'm grateful for. They can be personal, they can be professional. Uh, doesn't matter, just has to be three. And it just can't be whatever I said yesterday. I can repeat because I, I do want to make sure that I'm like very grateful for my wife and, I'm going to indicate that, but just can't be whatever I said yesterday. Uh, and it's really simple and, you know, probably takes just as long as brushing your teeth. Um, but it's one of these things that that's so critical to your own well-being and your own ability to say, uh, hey, I could be discontent. I could go out and start playing the comparison game or I can be grateful for what I have and and move on.
2: Yeah. I mean, I think that's related to, uh, you know, one of the approaches that you suggest in the article, which is, I mean, it may be a, a mini tech-free space, but it's a tech-free space where you're using physical pen and paper yes. to, to create your, you know, to create at least a, a space where there's no phone involved and there's not right. any pinging or reminders or notifications. So just that alone, it's probably worth, worth doing no matter what you're writing.
0: Absolutely. I I think, and I I do think I mentioned this in the article, I think one good practice for everybody and especially, you know, academics is to get out a physical notebook. It can be expensive. It can be cheap. Doesn't matter in the morning, you know, wake up a little bit before you need to, it can be just five or 10 minutes and, you know, go through, like I mentioned with the gratitude, just three things that you're grateful for. And then no more than three things. uh, And really, I would even say maybe one is best for this. Uh, that you really want to accomplish that day. So, you know, if we all have a bunch of things that we could be doing. We all have a bunch of things that we want to be doing. Um, but what one thing could you do to win the day? If I got this done, today's a win. Um, and that helps you start out the day from a more proactive uh, space. And right, so you don't have the, the email up in front of you. You know, you're not typing this on a computer. There's no chance that some notification goes off and that you're distracted. Uh, It's just you turning inward, uh, you know, analyzing, I believe, uh, I think it was Charles Duhigg, the the author of Habit. He had a quote that I heard one time that I really liked. He said that um, the most successful people tend to be those that are um, the best at identifying their deepest, most important desires. And so I think that's a practice that we should all have is like, what really are like my most important desires? Like, what's the thing that I need to be doing today Um, And so I think, you know, that time in the morning, uh, you know, having time that you turn inward, having time that you, you know, sort of set the foundation of gratitude and then set the direction uh, with what your priority is, I think can be a really powerful practice for a lot of people.
2: One of your approaches that I thought was really related to academia, because actually it's from a, well, to me, it's from a book that inspired this podcast, which is a book called Deep Work. I don't know if you reference it. Yeah, I think you're referencing this article. It's by Cal Newport, who's actually an academic at Georgetown. And this book is really great. I can't recommend it highly enough for anybody, much less or much more for academics because he is an academic and he's also able to tap into some of these entrepreneurial mindset pieces. And in that book, I believe, and I hope I'm not totally wrong about this, but he talks about... Uh, These people that intentionally, uh, scientists who intentionally isolated themselves. Right. Isolated. And this is, this is in a time like, you know, hundreds of years ago where there wasn't this social media. There wasn't the technology that's just getting into your head constantly. They went out to like, you know, some house in the countryside and spent intentional time alone. Right. And so I wanted, I wanted to, to mention that it comes from that book and it's kind of an inspiration for this podcast, but also, uh, you know, it really caught my eye when I read the article about this idea of intentional solitude. Right. And, you know, I, solitude,
0: um, you know, all the great geniuses throughout history seem to have intuited this notion that like solitude is actually good for you. And, you know, you mentioned the, the, the academics and the scientists, uh, and also, you know, one group that's discovered this is, is the writers and the novelists. And, uh, so the, the fiction author Neil Gaiman, for instance, um, you know, when he says that he's struggling with writer's block, he's like, well, I just got to go make myself bored. And so I'm going to go get a cabin in the woods and just forget everything. Um, I was, I believe, reading an article recently where, um, J.K. Rowling credits, uh, she, she lived, you know, way out in the woods during part of her childhood. And she credits this with being a very fertile time for her imagination. Like, listen, there wasn't a lot to do. You know, we weren't like out watching TV. We weren't, we, you know, you just kind of had to play games and you kind of had to imagine things. And so she comes up with this very imaginative world that's making her millions and millions of dollars a year. And, you know, a, a large part of that comes from her ability to, you know, when she encountered uh, solitude. To instead of, you know, turning from it and running from it or saying, oh, I might struggle with boredom from time to time here, you know, embracing it and saying, well, hey, what can this be used for? And, uh, you know, another quote that I love, it, it comes from the book I think I've already referenced, uh, Reclaiming Conversation by Sherry Turkle. Uh, she says, uh, and I hope I get this right, she says, uh, boredom can be recognized as your imagination calling you. And, you know, I think that word imagination, uh, you know, it's obviously important for people who are writing fiction, but i think it's important to you know for academics for everybody because you know it's important to remember that the real work that we do regardless of what we're doing is fundamentally a creative work you know nobody we're not in school anymore where there's a a a correct answer sitting on the you know teacher's desk somewhere and we're going to be judged by our conformity to that answer if we're going to do real work there needs to be some real uh creativity happened we're going to have to exercise that that imagination component of our brain, uh, to be able to bring something worthwhile to the table.
1: Yeah. I find that attention in my world because I I have kind of an artistic side that, um, that, you know, I almost went to art school. I did, and I went to engineering school, but, um, I feel like that part of my brain knows how to seek out This space for a flow state, you know, to have all the things come together. And, um, I, when I get in that kind of a vibe, I, I try to, to draw on that for, for writing and for my academic work. But it just, it is very easy for the, short-term demands to take over their claim on your time. So what I liked in your article was just kind of these practical ways of saying yes, your short-term demands are going to be barking at your door. So how do you set aside this time to allow your brain to get into that place that you recognize as a generative uh state.
0: Right. And so, you know, I I think we we've talked about the the morning and you know, I think starting out right, uh, one thing to bookend it is I think it's important to to end each day right and to end each day without you know all of your your sort of cares and concerns and without looking to some external stimulus, but to really have that unwinding time. So uh, like I mentioned before, our, our brains are going to be more pro- most productive when they're allowed to focus deeply and then really unwind and relax. And so both parts of those are necessary. You need that deep focus, which is distraction free. And then you need that relaxing component, and the that should happen throughout the day during the day, but the biggest time that it happens is you know during sleep and so I think you know all of us who want to be uh, effective and productive people we need to protect that time towards the end of the day um, maybe let's say the last hour before you go to bed to really just have that be a time where you know maybe you're connecting with people uh, not through technology, not through a screen, but you know anybody you know spouse or, or kids or anything like that. Um, you know, you're letting your mind unwind, you know, maybe you can read some fiction. Um, you know, if there's anything that's bothering you, this is another good time to journal. You can sort of jot it down to get it, you know, we'll call it off your mind and, uh, to help you go to sleep better. And so, you know, that way, I I think if you're beginning your day intentionally, you know, instead of in a reactive mode, but in a proactive mode, uh, you know, you're listing what you're grateful for, you're, you're figuring out what your priority is. And if you can end the day uh in such a way that you're you're entering into that rest and leading into that sleep and you're getting enough sleep uh you know i think that both of those that that's a powerful one two punch
1: yeah and i think for the the folks who are maybe addicted to checking off to do lists you can just say that this is you know putting your brain into this restful state is part of your brain maintenance. It's right. a mental hygiene step. You're doing the right thing. It's it's actually productive.
0: Yeah. So there's actually, that's the subject of an article that I, I uh, just, I can't remember if I published it today or if I scheduled it today to publish later on medium.com. Uh, I was about this very thing. So I titled it something to the effect of, uh, here's the most productive thing that you can do with 10 minutes alone. and And my thing was like, you can do nothing. Like that's a thing that you can do is you can, and, you know, it doesn't have to necessarily mean that you like lie there, um, you know, just, you know, totally still, uh, you know, walking is one of the things that many people, th- yeah, <laughs> just, oh, I'm just going to lie there, do nothing. Um, you know, walking is actually one of the things that many people have found that like during this time of mental rest, you know, so even, you know, if you're, if you're off, you're working on a paper or something, you're locked in your office, you know, you're, uh, you're, you're going to be very stationary, and so it becomes this natural compliment to like, okay, when it's time to let your mind unwind, get your body moving too. And, uh, you know, just people from all sorts of disciplines over the years have have reported the benefits of just, you know, going on a walk. And a walk has the advantage of, you know, it's not too difficult. Your brain can kind of do it on autopilot. And, you know, there's interesting things that you might see on the walk, but there's nothing so demanding that it's going to capture your attention the way that like a screen would. And so you can kind of sort of half focus on the things that are around you, maybe get some inspiration from them. Your brain can kind of relax, unwind, maybe sort of half be thinking about what you were working on. Uh, and this is the way that, you know, you can make, uh, new connections. And, uh, one of the analogies that I've, I've heard used, um, is that this focus mode is kind of like a, like a bowling alley with bumpers on it. And so when you're focusing, you, you, there's not a lot of, room that your mind has to operate because, and you know, this is, then there's been all kinds of, you know, psychology experiments on this where, you know, you can do different things and people won't notice because they're, they're dialed into something. Um, you know, it's like you can, you know, if it, I think there was the one experiment where people would not notice you switched out the, uh, the clerk at the store and like they, they, they bend down to get something and you're focusing on something else and they'd come back up as a different person. And, and like, you wouldn't even notice. So w- when you're dialed in, y- your mind doesn't have a lot of opportunity to recognize things that are going around on around you. Uh, whereas, uh, what we'll call, you know, system one or diffuse mode. Uh, this is this time where your, your mind's at rest, where, because you're not locked in like that, your, your mind's more like a pinball machine where the your thoughts can kind of bounce around. And this is where you can make unexpected connections. And then this is where you can, you know, forge new neural pathways. And this is where the the, the actual learning happens is you have this time to, you know, if you're doing nothing, uh, you know, your brain is still kind of working, even though it, it it doesn't seem like it's working. It seems like it's being lazy because it's not being taxed in that focus mode. Uh, this is actually a very productive time and a time that's necessary to make the, the focus time better.
1: The whole thing that you are doing and putting attentionality around this is is just sort of listing as a task stop with the tasks for a while, you know, right. Um, that's uh, the anti-task. So, um, well, I, I really feel like we've learned so much from you and I would, I would love to um, maybe have you back on another time to talk about the book that you've written. Yeah, um, thanks. And, in line with that, um, would you like to just explain if our audience would like to know more about you, where they can find you and, um, other things they might be interested in that you have to offer?
0: Yeah, sure. So, um, my blog is thematthewkent.com. So that's T H E M A T T H E W K E N T dot com. And I actually created a, a page, uh, just for the listeners of your podcast. It's thematthewkent.com slash helium. And so uh, I've got several things there. Uh, one of them is a free uh, PDF ebook of uh, a productivity guide that I wrote called "The Ultimate Daily Checklist: Thirteen Steps to Winning the Day." Um, and then there's different places where you can follow me on on social media. There's links for that. And then at the bottom, I included. I think it's about four or five uh, recent articles that I've written that I I think you might be interested in. You know, I write on a a variety of topics. Productivity is one of them. You know, general health and well being, personal finance. And you mentioned my book, and uh, thank you for that. That was actually the the book that I wrote. My first book. I published it on Amazon Kindle, and uh, it's called Personal Finance That Works for You. And uh, just really, you know, I mean, money is one of these critically important topics that we don't talk about enough. And it took me a long time to get my head around it. And I wanted to share what I'd learned with other people. So um, it was actually the fruit though, of some of the strategies that uh, I've been describing. Uh, so, you know, it was before I wrote that, that I was learning all of these things that we've been talking today about productivity. And so, you know, the, the fact that I was able to write that book and get it published this year uh, wouldn't have been possible without the things that we're talking about today.
2: Well, thank you, Matthew, for joining us. We really appreciate it and really appreciate you setting up a special page for our, uh, our audience. I think that's really cool. You're the first one to do that. So thank you so much for, for being such a great well, you're guest. You're welcome,
0: guys. Thanks for having me on. I really am truly grateful. I think it was a great conversation and uh, I really appreciate what you guys are, are doing and I wish you guys the best of luck.
2: Thanks, everybody, for listening to episode 17 of Helium Podcast. Today, we talked about technology and your life and your creative life and your professional life and how those technologies are always going to be there. It means that we have to think about ways that we can actively battle against those technology technological intrusions, which means that you need to set aside time during your day to do mental hygiene. I love the concept of mental hygiene from Matthew Kent. It's awesome. I think he's going to have some dentists after him, but he'll probably have some brain scientists that are cheering him on to encourage people to do that kind of thing on a daily basis. If you want the notes from this week's episode, you can go to www.teamhelium.co slash episode 17. You can also go to Matthew Kent's special page that he set up for this episode thematthewkent.com slash helium, where he's put some articles that are of special interest to possibly to this audience. So we really appreciate Matthew setting up that page, coming on the show, really talking about his awesome ideas for how we can combat technology in our life. Another thing to note about this episode is that the music was provided by Michael Blake. He can be found at mblakemusic.com. And this show is produced and edited by me, Matt Hotze and Christine Ogilvie Hendren. Have a wonderful day. We really appreciate all of our listeners. Please remember to hit that subscribe button on whatever podcast platform you're using. We really appreciate your support. Take care, and we'll see you in the next episode.